names of God and deal now for some time with the attributes of God. I hope that you'll remember that any time we discuss the attributes of God, that you'll keep in mind the discussions that we had in the past about the whole problem of God talk. Lest we come into the fatal error of confusing our descriptions of God by way of attributes uh, with univocal speech, thinking that we've totally, exhaustively, comprehensively defined or described God. That is not the case. However, we also want to avoid falling into a, uh, a radical kind of skepticism where we think we can say nothing of meaningful import about God. I also just have to just comment here that as soon as we use the term attribute of God, the word attribute itself uh, is a, a term that has been in some dispute uh, technically among theologians because attributes are usually conceived of as something that is added to the substance of a, of a being. And uh, it's not like the attributes of God are something added to his nature, but they're an attempt to describe uh, really the properties as such of God's nature as it is. Now that, of course, uh, is rather a technical debate, uh, and usually it ends up where they come back and use the term attribute after all of that uh, uh, distinction anyway. But I think we understand among ourselves, uh, simply speaking, what an attribute is, a uh, uh, a property or a, a uh, particular dimension of a person's uh, nature. Uh, biblically, the word is idios, uh, uh, referring to an attribute or a property of a person. And uh, we get an English word from that. And no, it's not idiot. It's uh, idiosyncrasy. So it comes from that word. But in any case... Uh, we do talk about, at least classically, about the attributes of God. And again, traditionally, the, there is a distinction made often between what are called the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. And I think that this distinction is a helpful one to us. And even this distinction is disputed in other designations to, to make this differentiation have been used, but for our purposes we can just stick with this by for way of convenience of this distinction between communicable and incommunicable. What is meant by that distinction is this, that the communicable attributes, and let me begin the other way, let's begin with the incommunicable attributes. The incommunicable attributes are those attributes which find little or no analogy in man those attributes in which man does not participate or does not have. The communicable attributes would be those attributes which in some way we can participate in. For example, if we say that God is loving, uh, there's a certain sense in which we can also be loving. There's some reflection or analogy of being here between ourselves and God at that point. Huh? But there are certain aspects or properties or communicable sorry, attributes of God which we have no reflection of in our own character, in our own uh, sphere of creation. So I want to divide up our discussion of the attributes of God in terms of this division or distinction of incommunicable and communicable and begin by an investigation of some of the incommunicable attributes of God. Those attributes which find little or no analogy in man. 
The first one we will call the attribute of self-existence. The attribute of self-existence. I might say also at this point that two other words have often been used in the history of the development of theology in place of the term self-existence. And those two words being the independence of God or the aseity. And I'll just write that word out for you. Aseity. Because that's a word you... This is an E. No, no. A word that you may come in contact with in your readings and it will be left unexplained or undefined. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. Aseity or self-existence means that God has the power or the ground basis of existence in himself. You often hear this kind of a discussion in philosophical theology in terms of the concept of necessary being. That is, that God is not a contingent being, one who is dependent upon something or someone else for his own existence, but he has the quality of necessary being. That is, he exists in and of himself. He is totally independent. Everything else in the universe is dependent upon him for its existence. God is dependent upon nothing. Some have even used the term causa sua, sui, that is, uh, that he's the cause of himself. But I don't like that because that has a tendency to uh, mislead you, to suggest that God causes himself to be because you can't even speak of causality in terms of the being of God because God is not caused. He's not caused by anything else. He's not even caused by himself. Uh, causality is quite apart from the discussion of God. He is because he is, of course, eternal. But this concept of independence is very important to our understanding of God. He is, in a certain sense, what we would like to be in terms of our earlier discussion of the rebellion of man and the initial fall, again, the temptation, you shall be as gods, in that context, however, it was in terms of knowing good and evil. But nevertheless, the quest for autonomy of being a law unto oneself is also, in a sense, a quest for total independence and self-sufficiency. And in our drive to be self-sufficient and independent can become, at a certain level, an attempt for self-deification. Because this is a property or an attribute that belongs, properly speaking, only to God. The one thing that marks us unmistakably as creatures is the fact that we are dependent, contingent beings. In fact, historically and classically, one of the most frequently used arguments for the existence of God is the sense of dependence that is so commonly present in the thinking mind. One kind of ontological argument that has been frequently used, and I'm thinking here in, primarily in terms of, uh, of Augustine and Descartes. 
Augustine, most importantly, is the one who says that we come to a discovery of, of God and other things partly through a radically introspective method. By looking within ourselves, we can come to a knowledge of God. And he follows the argument this way. As I begin this rigorous self-examination, I become aware of myself. I have an experience of self-awareness. But that awareness of the self always carries with it the awareness of the self as a finite, dependent being. Any man who is honest with himself, who looks within, recognizes that he does not have the capacity of a seity. He is a dependent, finite, contingent creature. And this, of course, leads us to the awareness through self-introspection, uh, according to Augustine, it leads us to, a, an in, at least indirectly, to an awareness of the one before whom and by whom, from whom we are ultimately dependent. In 19th century theology that was heavily oriented toward, toward experience, certainly one of the most, if not the most important theological uh, thinker of that day in terms of the development of the theology that was peculiar to 19th century thought was, of course, Frederick Schleiermacher. And Schleiermacher's theology... Uh, based on experience, was that what he found was, in, in examining men in their experience, was this sense of what he called God consciousness. And the Christian man, of course, should develop that God consciousness, and it really boils down, in Schleiermacher's thought, to a feeling of dependence, what he called an Abhangekeitsgefühl, a feeling I like that German word there, that feeling of obhangekite, of hanging on to. You see, that's what the feeling of dependence is, a feeling of having to hold on to something else to maintain your own support, to maintain your own uh, uh, ability to, to uh, continue to exist. And, of course, he described this human sense of dependence as being at the essence of the Christian faith. And there's a certain sense, though I'm not Schleimacher in any sense, there's a certain sense in which there's a lot of truth in what Schleimacher is saying there, that the Christian is one who cultivates this feeling or sense of dependence upon God. Uh, now, I say that at the risk, you see, of being understood at this point as being one who propagates the idea that Christianity functions or operates as a crutch. How many times have you heard that? Well, you're just a Christian because you need a crutch. Well, that's, <laughs> that's absolutely true in a very certain sense because man at the very basis of his existence is dependent. And a man who is crippled, of course, is dependent upon the crutch for his mobility. And uh, there is a very real sense in which we are dependent upon God. Descartes carried this in another dimension. He said, not only am I aware I have to reason into the idea of God as the cause of my existence, but God is also the cause of my continuity of existence. And Descartes played with that concept for quite a long time and dealt with it in this dimension, you see, that we don't, we don't only have to acknowledge the fact that, that we're dependent upon God for our existence, that is, initially, uh, we don't only have to find God as the power for creation of man by reasoning back to the beginning of uh, time and all that, but the point that the Christian has to realize that he's not only dependent upon God for his origin, but he's also dependent upon God for his continuity of existence. We can't live for a moment 
apart from the sustaining power of God. If God would remove his support from our lives right now, we would perish instantaneously. Because the very power of life is in the hands of God. And that there's no place, you see, that we're more conscious of this than we are at the point of the vulnerability that we experience in terms of life and death. We do not have the capacity to maintain and continue indefinitely our own life. You see. And we don't only have it, we not only do not have it individually, but we don't have it corporately. Consequently, the, the ultimate failure of humanism. It remains left in the trap of contingency, of finitude, of dependence. But God, again, is radically different from us. He is so independent that he needs nothing apart from himself, not only to explain the fact of his existence, but also to guarantee the continuity of his existence. He has the power of life within himself. That's what makes him the difference between creator and creature, between the infinite one and the finite one. In John 5.26, we hear in the biblical language, we have this statement that the Father has life in himself. That's the, that's the Hebraic way of speaking. The Father has life in himself. That really underlines the profound difference, you see, when you're talking about dependence and independence. No man can say that. That's why there's a certain sense in which no man can be ultimately free. No man can be ultimately independent. Now just Let me just add to this again from a cultural perspective something of the insight of Jean-Jacques Rousseau on this. Remember Rousseau's famous uh, statement that man was born free and everywhere he's in chains. And the idea of the innocent noble savage who in his pristine situation apart from civilization enjoyed a much higher level of freedom than man in Western European civilization uh, per, uh, enjoys or participates in. And he talks about the fact that the corruption of man is inseparably related to the effects of civilization upon him. Uh, it's, it's, you know, the idea that man is basically good, but it's civilization that corrupts him. You've heard that theme uh, a thousand times, but when Rousseau analyzes that, you see, he says, what happens is that as soon as people become to get together in a group, as soon as I become dependent on you for anything, I lose something of my freedom, which is horrible for us, which will maybe make me or cause me to hate you. In other words, two men are out there and they're living self-sufficiently. They have a guy's farming his own land. He's making his own supplies. He's building his own house. He's doing everything by himself. But suddenly his house burns down and the neighbor comes over and helps him. That's the beginning of the, def of the decline of society. Because now one is dependent upon the other. Or he owes him something. So he's lost his freedom by accepting help, by accepting... Uh, uh, the black community understands that. 
wouldn't you say? The idea is, uh, you know, if you hand out somebody somebody's in need and you just hand them, hand them money or something, then there's a sense in which now that person is obliged to you. He's obligated to you. You've placed, you've robbed him. You've, you've maybe helped him in one need, but you've taken something very precious away from him the other way. And uh, we've discovered these kinds of problems in the whole issue of self-development of people and all the rest. But the idea, of course, is that we're living in a society that's, that, that becomes more and more a society of dependence. As we become more and more industrialized and, and uh, more and more specialized, I am dependent upon the baker, the butcher, the candlestick maker. You see. The more and more I do that, there's a certain sense in which I'm losing more and more of my freedom. But... That isn't necessarily, the only reason that that's bad, this is where we have to differ from Rousseau, there's nothing intrinsically bad about that. The thing that's bad about that is that how we deal with each other in these relationships. It's because of our moral corruption that that becomes a problem. In the kingdom, there's nothing, no problem with, with uh, reciprocal help because there's not one guy trying to get the other guy under his thumb. In creation, there's nothing wrong with mutual interdependence and mutual help. It's only when you have creatures who are so selfishly oriented and so power-oriented that this becomes a debilitating and oppressive uh, dimension to our society and to our existence. But the point is, the fact remains that in God we find total independence. He's not dependent on any way on his creation. God's creation and the fact of his creation is an expression of his grace, not of his need. And that's a critical point for a Christian to understand. Your life and your effort in no way meets the needs of God. He can get along famously without you. God's felicity is not going to be destroyed by your infidelity. God's will is not going to be frustrated by your slothfulness. All of our labor, all of our work, all of our involvement in the kingdom of God is a privilege. Not because God needs us. Do you understand that? God, says the scriptures in the book of Acts, in the fourth chapter, is not served by men's hands as though he needed anything. Now, that may sound like old stuff to you, but I want you to realize that that's a radically different concept that the Jewish people had of their God from much of the neighboring religion of their day, where it was thought that the neighboring deities needed the oblations and the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and all of those things in order for them to continue to exist. You presented those burnt offerings so that God could eat, see, so that the deity could survive. But that's not the case in Israel. Yahweh makes it abundantly clear that he needs not the offerings of the people in terms of sustaining his own existence. Our God is independent in the fullest sense of the word. Now, oh. Uh, before I move on, do you, do, is, are there any questions about this uh, particular point? I, mean, I want to make it clear 
I mean, sometimes we think, boy, that unless we do something, uh, uh, God is going to perish. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. That doesn't mean that he hasn't called you. He hasn't uh, invited us to participate in his work of redemption and all the rest. And that he isn't delighted and pleased that we are involved in the task of building his kingdom. Indeed, that is. But the point is, that doesn't make God dependent upon us. And we have to be very careful lest we come into that same kind of thinking that we do on a human level. As if God needed us for anything. Yes? To what extent is God involved in our lives in the same way that artists are involved in the painting or sculpture and the sculpture that destroys the artist's lost art? Say that again, Tom. To what extent is God involved in our lives? Is that God... If we don't give him the, our offerings on Sunday morning, that I mean, God's not going to starve. And all of a sudden, the next six months, God's going to be skinnier than he was in the last six months because we didn't come up with enough offerings. That's what I'm talking about here. His being, his essence, you see. He's totally independent. He's not, his being, his life is not sustained. Uh, I'm dependent upon the sun, I'm dependent upon water, I'm dependent upon food, I'm dependent upon doctors, I'm dependent upon all these things to, for my continuity of existence. What we're talking about now is the existence of God. It's totally independent. Okay? If the universe perishes tomorrow, that does not mean the death of God. He will continue. All right, now another uh, attribute of God that we need to look at briefly is the infinity of God. He's called infinite. Now sometimes uh, in some studies of the doctrine of God and of the attributes of God this term will be eliminated it won't be one of the attributes and maybe something else will be in its place like, like eternity or eternality be an attribute of God or uh, omnipresence or uh, uh, immensity or whatever. But I'm going to take all of those other things that I just mentioned and subsume them under the one heady heading of the infinity of God. What do we talk about? What do we mean when we say that God is infinite? Huh? Uh, th this particular word is the occasion of much misunderstanding and indeed heresy from time to time in the popular expression and speech of Christendom. I can remember one time I gave a uh, sermon in seminary, you know, practice sermon in a homiletics class, and I had to uh, uh, talk about the greatness of God. And I was really extolling the wonders of, and the riches of God, and, and I said something about the infinite mercy of God. And afterwards, when I sat down and was subjected to the critique of the uh, professors that were there, the professor asked this question to me. He said, what do you mean by infinite mercy? Are you saying that there's no limit to God's mercy? Yeah. He said, are you a universalist? <laughs> really, I was just trying to find a word that would, that would describe the immensity of God's mercy, the abundance of it, the enormity of it, the fantastic dimensions of it. And I, I use the word infinite. Quite an improper term to use with reference to the mercy of God or the grace of God. Huh? 
So we get in a lot of trouble, a lot of problems when we use this word infinite. Now, part of the problem, a large part of the problem, dealing with God in terms of infinite, is the meaning of the term itself, infinite. What does the word infinite mean? <laughs> what is infinity? And even that's not the same thing as infinite. Infinite is the adjective, and infinity is the noun. But what do we say when something is infinite? Boundless. Okay, without boundary. Huh? And so there are some who argue that if you speak about the infinite God, the only conclusion you can come to if you're speaking about God's nature or his essence is that what you are describing is pantheism. Huh? Because if God is infinite ontologically, that means his, his being covers every possible point in the universe and then some. Because we can't even talk about every. Because <laughs> that suggests a definite volume, doesn't it? Huh? It's infinite. And that means that everything in a certain sense, is the nature of God. And that's pantheism. If we understand the word infinite in that way. Others argue, well, you know, at the same time you can have different kinds of infinite dimensions. There's certain ways in which God is infinite. And just like in mathematics, an infinite line doesn't necessarily incorporate everything, does it, Jim? Wrong? <laughs> right. You can have more than one infinite line, can't you? So there's a real sense that univocally that first line is not quite infinite. It's infinite maybe in one direction, or in two, or in so many dimensions, but not in a total dimensional measure. So we have to be careful when we use that term infinite not to suggest by it some kind of pantheism, all-embracing, all-inclusive uh, extension of God's being in, in the sense in which we've used it. Uh, we still make that distinction between the nature of God, the being of God, the essence of God, and the essence of this world. That which is created is other than, apart from, different from what God is. Now, what do we mean? In a certain, uh, in a very analogical sense, when we speak of the infiniteness of God, well, I think we have to speak of it in terms of two categories. The one being the category of space, and the other one being the category of time. Hmm? We use the term infinite uh, in both uh, areas, do we not? Well, let's start with uh, let's start with time. Let's start with the infiniteness of God with respect to time. We usually use another term, and this is where the term eternity of God or eternality of God comes into play when we speak of the infinite dimension with reference to time. Now, keep this in mind. Always remember, when we're using terms like infinite, that we remember the problem of God talk, that we're not speaking univocally. 
And here's a good place to show you where that's a problem. When we speak of infinity, with reference to time, what do we usually understand that to mean? When we speak of infinity with reference to time, what do we usually understand by that? I mean, we may have a difference of, of understandings among ourselves. I don't think we do usually understand of infinitely, infinity time-wise in terms of timelessness. Well, first of all, let me ask you this. We have a word, timeless. We can speak abstractly, of timelessness. But there's a concept that's utterly inconceivable. You see. Utterly inconceivable. There's where the problem of God talk. This is where we can see it. Because we cannot think apart from the references in which we operate. We cannot think in terms of time. We can make the word. But really, it's a, it's, we're speaking by way of negation here. Remember I talked about the via negationis. We're saying all, all the timelessness means is the absence of what we do know. We're just saying it's different from uh, the, the, the continuum of time that we're involved. Usually, however, when we think about infinity with reference to time, we think or to conceive of an endless progression of moments, huh? Sequence. Of time as we know it, just extending it uh, by the via eminentia, you know, by the eminence, you see, building up... Extending it forever. Hmm? That's what we usually mean by that. And there's a certain sense in which the, the Greek concept of eternity that was used in the New Testament uh, is used this way. Where, uh, let's just take uh, the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And you talk about the forever dimension of New Testament uh, thought. It's into the aeons. It means on and on and on and on and on and on and on into the ages. That's the concrete reference point. It's, it's relatively concrete. It's, it's abstract to be sure, but less abstract than a concept of timelessness. Now, when we speak of God's infinity in respect of time, we have a tendency to speak of it or think of it in terms of this endless progression of time. But theologians historically have usually added to that concept the idea of timelessness. But again, this is by way of negation. There is a certain sense in which God himself is not bound by time. Now, again, to conceive of that concretely is impossible. But we're not totally unable to discuss it or discussing it right now. Uh, this, of course, is inseparably related to another attribute of God which we will deal with, and that's in terms of his spirituality. See? It's because God is spirit that we can speak of his being possibly outside of time. Because time is a correlative, really, of what? Of matter or of space. Huh? 
How do, how, do you, how do you come to an understanding of time? Can you really conceive of time apart from matter and space? Time demands, I mean, to think concretely, but time demands uh, matter and motion. Hmm? Time is a movement of something. I'm not sure what. But, you know, one of the most difficult concepts... In, in all of philosophy, is the whole concept of time and space. What is space? Say, what is space? You can't really conceive of space as nothingness, hmm? it, or should we? Is space nothing? <laughs> is it? If it's nothing then we can't really call it space because then it would be something. Or is space a word that we use for the absence of something? And so it would be nothing. I mean, these are the kinds of problems that are involved philosophically with concepts like this that we're using every minute of every day. And I just use the word again, every minute. See, the passage of time, time, is it's incredible the significance of time. And I think, did I ever do this experiment with you with the clock? Didn't I in the pr past, present, and future? I did it with the students, I guess, in the January term. I haven't done it with you. Uh, can I see your watch there, Jim, for a minute? I don't know whether you can all see this. You really need a big clock to be able to be involved with this, but he has a second hand that at least I could see from, uh, from over there. How many of you can see the second hand moving around there? Can, can you see it? Huh? All right. Now, look up here at the top of the dial. Twelve is. You know, when this second hand gets up here, that moment in time at the present, right now, doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Now, I want you to watch it come into existence. Not here yet. Doesn't exist. Here it is. Now wait a minute. Let's go back and look at that again. <laughs> huh? Where is it now? It's gone. It, it, it's gone. And I'm telling you, you sit there and look at that and think about that for a little while, and you'll be a candidate for the funny form. See, that's the human question. That's the human predicament of time. Because we're caught in that. We weren't really sure that that moment was going to come. Scientifically, philosophically. And certainly we weren't sure what that moment was going to bring. Because it was future. And that, you know, the whole existential bag is caught up in that business. The fact that we are locked in to time. And time is really the great enemy of mankind. Because you see, our lifespan has been shortened since I started this discussion. 
and what we're moving towards on a human level, according to atheist existentialists, is non-being, nothingness. See, the only hope that they can see that removes you from time is the same thing that removes you from being and from existence and to nothingness. Now, the point is, when you speak about the eternality of God, you're speaking about one who's not in that bag, who's not in that predicament, who stands above time, where one day, and in his sight, is as though a thousand years in ours. Nobody can conceive of that. But you see, if God exists as a spirit, ontologically other than and different from the universe, it's no necessity to con that God should be existing in space and time because those are ingredients or attributes of the space-time continuum of the universe. And it's not necessary to say that God is in time. However, when we speak about God as being in terms without beginning and without end and being eternal and at the same transcendent of the time factor and the time sequence that we're in, we also have to realize that that same God comes to us, biblically, as the Lord of history. That that God who in and of himself can exist apart from time and outside of time and in all time becomes involved with time. He's the author of time, the creator of time, and, most significantly, the redeemer of time. He is the one who gives that movement of time its impetus, you see, and its culmination, and who is the Lord above it. In a sense, he's the Lord of that clock. He's not caught, you see, in the anxiety of the space-time continuum. He's above it, and he controls it. And we're told by the scriptures that your time is measured by the Lord. That your time, your temporality, your finitude is not only known by, but is governed by God. And one last point here in, in terms of our relationship to the God who stands above time and controls time and is the Lord of time and who involves himself with the redemption of the time, that God of eternality holds you responsible for time. In Ephesians and in Colossians, you'll read the Apostle Paul giving a serious admonition and exhortation to the people of Christ to redeem the time. What does that mean? That our time matters because the God of time has ensured and determined that time matters. Okay. Now, with respect to space, 
when we speak of God's infinity with respect to faith, to space, we usually speak of it in terms of two technical theological terms. One is omnipresence or ubiquity and God's immensity. And I see right now, and I'm feeling existentially, the problem of the crisis of time. And then I'm not going to have time today to cover that. But next time, we're going to deal with space. All right?